like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going uh, to cover a lot of ground this morning. Uh, we're, we're looking at all of uh, 1 Samuel, but we're going to concentrate on verses 31 through 54. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles. Let me, let me go through this passage before we, we address what it tells us. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of this lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Then the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
Men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiram and as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. That's an iconic passage, isn't it? Story we all know. I mean, people that don't believe in God, people that don't believe that the Bible is true, they know the story of David. They're familiar with it. They know all the basics about the giant. You and I as believers know the story. But as I've spent time in this text, it's led me to wonder whether or not we understand the full impact of, of the truths that are buried in here. We know how to apply these truths to our lives in a proper, uh, an appropriate way. I've heard a lot of sermons about 1 Samuel 17. The general themes in them float around the general, the, 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 the basic idea that, that they want to evoke a decision as to who we are in this scenario. Are we David, a faithful man of God? Are we Saul? a fearful man of God, or maybe, maybe even someone, are, are, are we Goliath, a, a, an evil guy? In the end, we're supposed to emulate David, pick up our rocks and trust God, and if we do it right, we have the power to slay the giants in our lives. You ever heard that before? Those are, those are good ideas. They're not bad ideas. But I got to tell you something. They're based on an incomplete understanding of the context of these verses in chapter 17. Now, you know how important context is. We've been talking about it for years. It means everything when you're interpreting Scripture. You have to understand what the author was saying, uh, how it fits in that chapter, how it fits in that book, and how it fits in the overall message of the Bible. And I think, I think if we just reduce this down to slaying giants and faith, good messages, but I think we miss the gold that God has embedded in this story. So I'm going to try and unpack that for you this morning. And let me start with this revelation. Let's just get this out of the way, set it aside, toss aside our preconceptions, and and try to view these verses with fresh eyes this morning. Here's what you need to remember. You're not David. I'm not David. We are not David. Now, I want, to, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at why we're not David. So, we're concentrating on verse 31 through 54. I'm going to cover the whole chapter. Most of the action happens in, in 31 through 54. That's where the big fight is. Uh, but our verses for today divide up into four vignettes, four little scenarios, each one building upon the, the next one and leading to it. And here's, here's what the vignettes are. Here's what we'll see in 31 through 54. We'll see the concern of Saul in 31 through 40. We'll see the contempt of Goliath in 41 through 47. We will see the clash between David and Goliath in 48 through 51. And we'll see the conquest of Israel's army and David in 52 through 54. Now, once we look at those vignettes and understand them in context, uh, we're going to look at three lessons we can learn from the overall story. Before we get to the vignettes, let me lay some groundwork, and this is going to take some time, 
So I would ask you to bear with me, but I think it's important for you to understand the context of the story of, of David and Goliath. Chronologically, the book of Judges comes before 1 Samuel. If you've been reading along in our daily Bible reading and looking at some of the commentary, you'll know that the book of Judges was a dark time for the nation of Israel. The whole book is characterized by one of the quotes right there at the end of the book. It says, there was no king in Israel, which I believe is, is a prophetic utterance that there was no physical king in Israel, but at, it was at such a time that Israel didn't even recognize their heavenly king. It says, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what seemed to be right to them. So everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Now, First Samuel sees Israel emerging from that darkness, albeit a little bit slowly. And in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, we see Samuel raised up as a prophet, recognized by the nation as a prophet. He's one of the first godly men that's raised up in quite some time. In chapter 8, the people go to Samuel and ask for a king. And, you know, there's a reflection back on the, word, on the book of Judges. They don't have a king. Samuel tells them God is their king. Obviously a message they needed to hear. He says, God's your king. You don't need a king. But Israel wants a king like the other nations have. They want to have a leader like the nations around them have. So God, in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, gives them Saul. Now you go back and take a look at chapter 9 later on, you'll find out that it seems as though Saul's primary qualifications for being king is he was tall and good-looking. As a matter of fact, in that chapter, when God says, well, take that guy over there, he's tall and he's good-looking, if you want a king, he's as good as anyone else, they got to go looking for him because he's hiding. And the text says he's hiding by the baggage. And, and really, what it, it, the baggage back then meant that he was hiding by the trash bins. So their king is hanging out with the garbage. So Samuel anoints Saul in chapter 10 by pouring a flask of oil over his head. And Saul becomes king. Now, he starts out okay. He's doing all right. He's trying to be a godly man. But it soon becomes evident that Saul is stubborn, uh, he is willful, and he's disobedient to almost everything that Samuel and God tell him to do. Ultimately, because of his disobedience, Saul loses his kingdom. And it happens in a fairly spectacular fashion, except it happens prophetically. It doesn't happen physically. God declares that Saul is no longer king of the kingdom long before he, he removes him from the throne. Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected him as king. Then in chapter 16, Samuel anoints a son of Jesse, a small shepherd boy named David, to be king. And the anointing of David is significant. When Samuel poured a flask of oil over Saul to make him king, this is what they were describing. What happened to my little flask here? This is about what those people would think about when they saw a flask. It was small, it was about two inches, might have been a little bit larger, might have been a different shape, but it was something that the priests carried around to anoint things when they wanted to pray. So he pours a flask of oil over Saul's head to anoint him. A small jar, they would have heard tiny. When Samuel anoints David, he uses a horn of oil. <laughs> it literally was about this size. 
These, these served a couple purposes. You know, you could, they would blow them during battle. Uh, the shofar would sound during battle, uh, during significant events. But they would also plug it, and the priest would use it to hold oil for a significant anointing. So Saul is anointed with this much oil. David is anointed with this much oil. So there's some significance there, and we'll see exactly what it is as we continue to move through the passage. At the same time that David is drenched with oil, it says that the Holy Spirit descends upon him. It departs from Saul, and it descends upon David. So in the heavenly kingdom, David has become king, and Saul has lost his throne. Now, here's something significant. Uh, As Samuel goes into town and finds Jesse, as God told him to locate him and said one of Jesse's sons is going to be king, Samuel assembles all the elders of Bethlehem. Uh, and they go out to Jesse's home, wherever that is. And uh, when Samuel anoints David as king, David's entire family is there watching, and so are all the elders of Bethlehem. So it's not just Saul and David out in a field somewhere. This is the entire family and the leaders of Bethlehem. So like Saul's loss of the throne, David's kingship is not yet a physical reality. And we need to keep that in mind as we move through our passage. It has significant impact on our story. So by the time we get to 1 Samuel 17, Saul has been rejected, and David has been chosen as king by God himself. Ironically, after all these events happen, Saul goes off to war, and David goes back to watching sheep. He goes back to his father's place. In 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 12, we hear about the Philistines. Now, this is kind of interesting because if, if you remember our time in Joshua, uh, God had given uh, the coastal land, the area where the Philistines were, to the tribe of Dan. Uh, they fell to Dan for their allotted land. Dan wouldn't or couldn't take the land. Ultimately, Dan decides it's too hard to try and take this coastal land from the Philistines. They end up going north and invading a town of artists and gentle people as the, script, uh, as the scripture tells us. So Dan occupies an area they were not given and leaves the Philistines in an area that they were supposed to cleanse. And now here we are in the time of Samuel and the Philistines are causing a problem. So it's just another one of those ideas where, you know, if they had been obedient to God, perhaps this wouldn't be happening. But God is now using the Philistines to, to refine Israel. So um, they are, the Philistines are at war with Israel Um, they're in the valley of Elah. Let me show you where this is. It's about 20 miles uh, east, uh, west of Jerusalem. Uh, Here's what the valley looks like today. Uh, This picture is taken from Azekah, uh, which is mentioned in verse 1, which overlooks the valley of Elah. The Hebrew army would have been assembled on those mountains right there. Jerusalem is off in the distance, just beyond the horizon. The Philistines would have gathered on the mountains on the other side of the, uh, of the valley. And the battle would occur right there in between, somewhere in between. Now, this is significant, and watch what happens with the geography here. Uh, the Valley of Elah is located in an area called the Shephelah. Uh, it's a gentle rolling hill uh, area uh, between the coastal plains and the higher, um, more difficult hills uh, surrounding Jerusalem. The Philistines are on the coastal plain here, and they start out 
in Goliath's hometown in Gath. They want to attack Israel, and the quickest route, not the, not the easiest route, but the quickest route to get to Israel is right along the valley of Elah. So the Philistines get there. They've got a champion, uh, one who would uh, lead them. His name was Goliath. Uh, Goliath is their ish Benayim. He's a warrior who would represent them. Um, he's a single warrior that would not just represent them, but would stand in their place. He would be a substitute for them. He would fight for them. The Philistines trusted this man. He was a legend. He was their national hero. They all looked up to him. Goliath was a big guy. According to the most accurate texts we have, the Masoretic text, he was nine foot six. Uh, here's a little chart. Shaquille O'Neal is in the middle there. He's seven foot one. And David, David at this age is about five two and weighs all of about 100 pounds. Uh, too much wind and too much water, and David would just blow away. If you look at verses 5 through 7, according to the Hebrew text, Goliath has five pieces of weaponry. Now, incidentally, uh, the description of Goliath's weaponry is the most detailed description of any armament or weaponry we have in the Old Testament. So, uh, the Hebrew author is very precise on this. And here's what he has. He has a helmet. He has chain mail, uh, which he would wear here. He has greaves, uh, which would be armor for his shins and to protect his legs. He has a javelin, but a javelin to uh, that culture is a little bit different than a javelin to our culture. This javelin would have a long, thick rod with a curved blade on the end of it. It looked more like a sword than a javelin, and, and he would have had a shield. So the thing we need to know about Goliath's armor is it was absolute state-of-the-art. It was the best he could get. He was a huge, imposing figure. So when he stands in that valley and challenges anyone in Israel to come down and fight with him to determine the outcome of the war, no one's willing to step forward. Nobody wants to come forward. The guy's almost 10 feet tall. Weighs somewhere around 550, 600 pounds. It's all muscle. He's got another 125 pounds of armor that is state-of-the-art armor, almost impossible to, to breach with any weapon they have. Nobody comes forward. Nobody in the army of Israel. Incidentally, in the army are David's three brothers. They're there as well. So they don't come forward. Not even the king comes forward. Saul doesn't come forward. So the drama goes on day after day. Goliath walks into the valley. He makes his challenge. He taunts the God of Israel and gets no response. And that goes on for 40 days. Meanwhile, in verse 12 through 22 of 17, David's father, Jesse, tells David to come out of the fields. He gives him some cheese and some bread and some grain to give to his brothers and to give to the commander of their troop and as a favor for them and to see how the brothers are doing. And literally, David walks into camp with some cheese and crackers. You're like, look, guys, I got snacks. And when David arrives at the camp, he hears. He hears Saul's taunts. And he also hears, as he, as he begins asking around, that the man who defeats Saul will receive riches. He'll, he'll, get, he'll get gold. 
He'll receive the king's daughter as, as a bride. And his family will never have to pay taxes again. I'm not sure what the greater incentive was. They were all fantastic. So in verse 28 and 29, David's brothers see him, and they begin to make fun of him. They begin giving him a hard time. They accuse him of being morbidly curious about seeing the battle. They accuse him of being negligent of the little flock that he's supposed to watch. These are all terms of derision. The text doesn't really tell us what was going on in their hearts, but it sure sounds to me like David's brothers think that that the anointing that David received really didn't mean anything. I mean, they didn't see anything happen either. They're minimizing the anointing. They don't believe that Samuel's really a prophet, or they, they, they think that that Samuel picked the wrong guy. I mean, David's 5'2". They're all big, strong warrior guys. Uh, Or they're just jealous. They may be jealous of David. How can this little boy be king? Now, all that brings us up to our passage today and our first of our four vignettes. So you're going to see in a few moments why I wanted to cover all that background uh, for you before we looked at the battle. So let's look at the first vignette, the concern of Saul in verses 31 through 40. David steps forth and volunteers to fight Goliath. And in verse 33, we hear that Saul's pretty concerned about this, that he's concerned that David is too young, concerned that he's too inexperienced, uh, probably concerned that he's too small. Uh, Let me give you the Kavakis paraphrase for David's response to Saul's concerns, and David responds in 34 and 35. David kind of goes, are you kidding me? Don't you know that I've killed lions and bears with my bare hands? This Philistine's going to be nothing. Let me at him. So David places, and, and, and here's the incredible thing, is there's a little bit of bluster there, but where David places his faith is significant because they're all cowering in fear and wondering what they're going to do because nobody can beat Goliath. And David says this in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David says, God's going to win this battle. You don't have to worry about it. And Saul, who's really running out of options, sooner or later, somebody's going to have to fight. And what they don't want is they don't want the Philistine army to rise up and begin battle because they're outnumbered. Saul says, go. And the Lord be with you. Saul's desperate. Clearly, Not willing to go himself, but there's a lot at stake. You know, we read that that, uh, the victor uh, will take the others and the, 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 the vanquished will serve the victor. But in those days, that meant that they went and took their women and children and they would kill all the warriors. They would be executed. We saw that in Joshua. And by the way, in those days, the king was expected to go to war with his troops. He's expected to lead them into battle. And Saul, Saul was a Benjamite. And the Benjamites were known for being fierce warriors. So just as Goliath is standing in for the Philistines, it's Saul's duty to stand in for his men. That's his duty as a king. It's his duty to be there, Ishbaim. Ishbaim. Substitute. A representative. Saul, Saul tries to give David his armor. Very similar to Goliath, I think there's a, 
a literary thing happening here. In Hebrew, the author describes five pieces again. A tunic, which might not show up in your text, but the tunic was there, standard part of the Hebrew armor. A helmet like Goliath's, chain mail, uh, a sword, and a shield would have been part of the repertoire. So Saul's trying to be careful. You've got to give him some credit for trying to make sure that David's protected. But I've got to tell you something. Saul, I think, is being very crafty as well. Uh, because Saul knew the local traditions. The tradition in the Mideast taught that a warrior who wore the armor of another warrior and used the weapons of another warrior took on the essence of that warrior, became one with that warrior. You see what's happening here? It was just as if the owner of the armor was fighting the battle himself. That's what they thought in the Mideast. So Saul, a seriously prideful and stubborn man may well have been trying to set David up so that if David won it, Saul could claim the victory. I mean, if David loses, they all die anyway. There's a little bit more here. You remember Israel wanted a king, didn't they? They wanted a king like the other nations had. Wanted a king that would lead them the way the ungodly kings were leading their people. And now they have one. They've got Saul. They've got a tall, good-looking, powerful, mighty warrior as their king. But as is always the case when we ask for something for our own selfish reasons, when we long for the things of the world, when we begin to covet things that are beyond the scope of what God has given us, God sometimes gives us that stuff. But along with it comes the troubles that come with the things of the world, doesn't it? That's what's happening here. Now Israel's strong, handsome warrior has attracted the attention of a stronger, perhaps more handsome, certainly more powerful warrior. And Israel is about to be overwhelmed. Saul had state-of-the-art armor as well, but it wasn't helping him here. And it's not going to help David either. David gamely tries it on. He walks around for a little bit with it. Wisely decides that He's never used this armor before. It's heavy. It's big. He doesn't know how it would move in battle. And he's about to go into the battle of his lifetime. He gives it back to Saul. And in verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. There are a couple things you should notice here. First, David is using a sling. And yes, he's good at it. We read earlier about killing lions and bears and that sort of thing. But the Benjamites, the Benjamites were legendary at their expertise with the sling. The book of Judges said that they could fling a stone at a hare and not miss. So Saul who has already tried to cash in on David's bravery uh, by lending David his armor. David rejects the armor. And David walks on the battlefield with a weapon that Saul should be an expert at using. It's like slap, slap, slap in the face of Saul. Then David bends down and picks up five smooth stones. Let me tell you something. The Valley of Elah is 
filled with limestone cliffs and limestone hills. And it, it, it's, th there are literally probably hundreds of stream beds, and the stream beds look like this right here. Now, that some people think that may actually be the place where David fought Goliath. Um, I think so because I was there <laughs> for no other reason. <laughs> yeah, well, you see the limestone cliff in the background. The rains would come. Uh, they would wash away at the limestone. Rocks would fall down off the cliff, and they would tumble down the street, the stream bed. And every time it rained, they would tumble a little bit more, and eventually they would become smooth. So that's important, too. Every stream in the Valley of Elah is filled with stones. They look like this. David would have chosen five stones that were about two inches in diameter. Uh, these are actually, this is a stone from the Valley of Elah. Uh, I think this is the stone. Because um, there was a little mark on it when I picked it up, and I washed it off because I wanted to clean the stone, but I think that was Goliath. So we'll pass that around. Let's take a look at it. But it would have been about that size. His sling was sizable. It was about three feet long, folded up, had a, a pocket in it about this big. It had to hold a stone large enough to drop a bear or a lion. So there's nothing magical about the number. Uh, there, there's nothing mystical about him picking up five stones. As a matter of fact, it was traditional for a, uh, a shepherd to have five stones in his pouch so that he had, he had ammunition if he needed it. But there is something symbolic about it, and the author's been trying to tell us this all the way through the passage. You notice Goliath had five pieces of weaponry. You notice that Saul had five pieces as well. Well, now David has five pieces too. So let me mention, uh, because as we get through there, this can be a little confusing. Armor back then had multiple pieces, and we're going to find out that Goliath actually had more than five uh, when he stepped forward in the battle. But the author of 1 Samuel is making a point, and he's doing it in a typical Hebrew fashion. Uh, the lesson is more important than the numbers he's using. And this author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us to compare the weapons that are being used here. Uh, when, when a Jew would read the five, five, and five, the immediate thing he would do is go back and go, let's look at this. He's trying to tell us something. And when we do that comparison, we find that David is going up against a man who's equipped with the best weapons that mankind can produce in that age. Goliath's weapons took months of craftsmanship to make. But David is going into battle with ammunition that God made. And he had been making it for centuries, carving out limestone cliffs, forming stream beds, smoothing out stones, and arranging the geography of the entire region just so that when the Philistines choose to approach the Hebrews, they arrive at just the right spot for God's man of the hour to stoop down and pick up these five smooth stones. And in that we should see that it's not the stones that are going to win the battle, it's the one who created the stones. Now that brings us to our second vignette, the contempt of Goliath in verses 41 through 47. Now let me, let me just remind you the scene. You have two very large armies. There are thousands upon thousands of troops. They've been facing each other for 40 days. 
The tension had to be incredible. The Philistines are confident, and with each passing day, uh, the, the Israel's army is undoubtedly getting more and more apprehensive. Uh, after all, who among them is going to survive a fight with the giant? And if they don't survive the fight with the giant, they're all going to die. Whoever loses, loses for all of them. They're facing each other across the valley, and in the middle stands Goliath. Huge, powerful, dark, brimming over with, with power and confidence. And onto that stage walks David, five foot two, fair of complexion, a hundred pounds, a tiny guy compared, less than half the height. And he has no armor. He has no sword, nothing but a sling in his hand and five rocks in his pocket. Goliath sees that, and he goes wild with anger. This is an insult. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks in 43 and 44? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, by Goliath's gods. The Philistines said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Israel hears that and goes, that could be us. If David doesn't win this fight, our flesh is going to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that valley at that moment. David's standing there absolutely undeterred. He knows who's more powerful. You can hear it in his response. Starting in verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, that's the Philistine army, this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. David's saying, you don't seem to understand the situation here, Goliath. You guys are the ones that are going to get eaten up by the monsters so that you'll understand that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Wow. Notice David doesn't list all of his credentials. David's not telling Goliath about the lions and bears. All David is doing is pointing towards God. Saying God's going to win this battle. So, what happens? Boy, isn't the suspense fantastic? That was supposed to be funny, I'm sorry. I know you know the end of the story. Let's look at our third vignette, the clash, for verses 48 through 51. I, I, I mean, the, the fight itself is on, almost anticlimactic at this point. And, and look, we've got, we got three verses here. Uh, I'm sure everyone in the valley held their breath when uh, they saw in, in verse 48, as it shows us, David runs towards Goliath. David's running to the battle. And... and uh, Goliath is advancing on him. David loads his sling, and he lets a stone fly. And it hits Goliath in the forehead. And, I, I, and you know, Goliath falls down, and i got to tell you something, I've heard all sorts of explanations 
as to why this hurt Goliath. There's a nerve center there. There's some soft skin. You know, it, there might have been a point in the rock or something. And I mean, there's all sorts of worldly explanations. I've got to tell you something. This is just God doing what God always does. It's God fulfilling His promises and protecting and preserving His people. Goliath goes down hard. And David, David beheads Goliath using his own sword. And that sets our, our fourth vignette in motion, the conquest. The Philistines are so shook up watching their own man fall so easily. They do the only thing that they can think of doing because now they've lost the battle. And the agreement was that, that they would lose their lives. They turn around and they run for the hills. They've got no integrity. Israel pursues, chases them all the way back to Gath, all the way back to Goliath's hometown and then on to the coastal plain that they occupy. So there's, there's the iconic story. There's the story of David and Goliath. We've seen all the familiar parts. A lot of us know this from Sunday school. I remember hearing about this in Sunday school. I, I'm not sure in Sunday school anybody told me about the beheading part, <laughs> but... We kind of do that in Sunday school, don't we? We try and protect our kids. We don't, want to, we don't want to scare the kids, so we kind of water down the truth a little bit. We talk about fuzzy bunnies on the ark. We don't talk about floating bodies. We talk about David and his sling, but we don't talk about the aftermath. And i got to be honest with you, I think we shortchange our kids because kids learn up, grow up learning how wonderful God is and never really have an appreciation for how serious sin is. And that's what we have a picture of here. Goliath is opposing God. I mean, it's a brutal scene, but the consequences of sin are brutal, aren't they? And, and we see it right there. So I heard about David and Goliath. I didn't, nobody told me about the hard part here. I sure did hear a lot about slaying the evil giant, though. I heard a lot about that. And right about here is where some would tell you that you too can slay the giants in your life. Have you ever heard that about this passage here? If you, if you have just enough faith, if you're just willing to humble yourself and stoop down and have enough wisdom to pick the right five stones, then you can have victory as well. I once heard a sermon that gave five lessons on each of the stones and how each of the stones was a, a representative of a, an element of our faith. And, I, you know, I listened to that guy for 40, 45 minutes or so, and I walked out going, wow, that's really deep. You know, a couple years later, I'm sitting there going through the passage again, and I said, wow, that was really garbage. There's nothing in there about the stones being elements of our faith. Who among us has not read this passage at least once thinking, I can be like David? I know if you're a guy, you'd think that. That's what I thought when I read it. I want to be like David. I want to stand against, you know, unparalleled odds. I want to be so good with my weapon that I can just drop that giant just like that. I want to be like David. And I have been told in the past that I can be like David. Matter of fact, I read a lot of teaching about this passage. It says that David is our example. But I want you to remember where we started about 40 minutes ago. 
We're not David. You're not David. I'm not David. You know why we're not David? David was God's anointed king of Israel. David was the anointed, ordained king of Israel. No one in this scenario seems to remember that that happened. Samuel dumped a horn of oil on David. At that point, David was predestined to sit on the throne. It hadn't happened physically, but it had happened in the spiritual kingdom. Do you understand that? The Holy Spirit came down and rested on David. Whatever happened on that battlefield, brothers and sisters, David wasn't going to die. David wasn't going to die. His reign was going to be a key component in the lineage of the Messiah. Well, John, somebody said, you just robbed me of every meaning, shred of meaning I had in this passage. Passage is about David. That's great. I thought this was a lesson about my faith. It's all about David. What do I learn from this? There are three lessons. Three lessons. Listen to them. And then you tell me what's better. Some fantasy teaching about slaying giants or a lesson about a far more profound set of truths. Our problem with missing the point in this passage stems from thinking that we have to choose who we're, who we're going to be. Choose who we're like. And, 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 and we think that the choices are only David and Goliath. Well, who's going to pick Goliath after you read the passage? I want to pick the guy that dies with, you know. So we all think we've got to be like David. We're going to get anything out of the story? We need to be like David. But we're not David. He was the true king of Israel, brothers and sisters. Well, now, that produces a dilemma for us. Because we're not Saul, a false and flawed king who had no throne. Hopefully, we're not Goliath, the personification of evil and ungodliness. So who are we? Who can we relate to in this picture? That's a question we have to ask ourselves this morning. And your answer is going to have eternal impact because there really are only two other major players in the scenario. We have some minor characters, David's brothers and Jesse and so on and so forth. But there are only two other major players in our vignettes. And they are the Hebrews and the Philistines. The Hebrews and the Philistines. So, are you the Hebrews or the Philistines? Are you the ones David is representing? Are you the ones that David is opposing? Are you the one that God wins the victory for? Or are you the one that God defeats? It's the only choices we have. See, this is not an ancient story. This is not a 4,000-year-old tale of some prophet way back then and some king way back then and some giant, and I don't even believe giants exist. This is a story for right here and right now. In a very real way, it's about faith. But it's not about the faith to win the fight, brothers and sisters. It's about the faith with the battle for our souls. Do you understand? The Hebrews are totally helpless. 
They're totally 100% dependent on David and what happens between him and Goliath. If David doesn't win the fight, they die. Their only hope is David. You see the bigger truth that's being revealed here? Do you see a shadow of Jesus Christ? David is the precursor for the Messiah. He enters the battlefield not on behalf of the Hebrews, but in their place. He is the Hebrews' Ishbenaim. All you have to do is look at the progression of David's story through these two chapters. See the similarities with Christ. He went to his brothers with, with gifts and with encouragement. He wasn't received by his brothers. They gave him scorn. They cursed him. He blesses them. They, he absorbs their anger. Then he steps on the battlefield and acts in a manner that saves them. He stood in their place and fought the battle for them. David was not perfect. He points towards the perfect one. He points towards the perfect Ishbenaim. The one who will one day hang on a cross, fight the battle for our souls, fight the battle for all those who are his people, the one who will die in their place and win the victory that they could never win, that we can never win. See, and that's the second lesson. The battle that you and I are in is an impossible battle for any one of us to win. It's as impossible as it was for David. David was overwhelmed. He was outgunned. He was in over his head. If God didn't do something miraculous and supernatural, he would die on the battlefield. We're in the same boat. We're unable to win the fight. We are unable to save ourselves. Only by a supernatural occurrence do we have any hope of being saved. We're in even worse shape than David was because Scripture tells us that before we find Jesus Christ, we are dead. David was at least breathing. We're dead in our sins. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord, then you have experienced a miracle that surpasses the miracle that David experienced. You have been regenerated. You have been transformed. You have been made new. You have been resurrected from the dead. The second lesson is the miracle of your salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he did it when you were spiritually dead and unable to rescue yourself. Here's a third lesson. Because that's scary, isn't it? You're safe. Brothers and sisters, you're safe. Don't we learn that about David? You may not feel safe right now. You may feel like your situation is overwhelming you. You can't possibly get out of this and survive. But i got to tell you something, and I may be wrong about this. I don't really think David felt safe when he looked up at Goliath. I think he felt confident. I think he had heard what Samuel said. I think he believed it. I think he felt the Spirit descend upon him. But you know how it is sometimes when you're out there in the real world. Goliath is nine foot six. 
I believe the greater story in here is that David fought in spite of his fears. He, he trusted God in spite of his fear. We know David was safe because Samuel anointed him. He anointed him to be the king of Israel. It was a prophetic act and it was a promise. We've got an even better one, brothers and sisters. We've got a better promise than David had. And this one comes not from a prophet, but from God himself. If you believe in God, if you have faith in his only son, if you've repented from your sins, if you've called out to him, then he's coming back for you. Jesus is coming back for you. Your destiny your place in eternity is assured. And assured not by anything you've done, not by anything you've done right or wrong, but by the work of your own personal Ishbaneah. The man who died in your place, who paid for your sins, and now by the grace of God, you belong to him. Isn't that better? Isn't that a bit more comforting than some fairy tale about slaying giants? Loved ones, if you understand what just happened here, you understand that you don't even have to face the giants. You don't have to go through the battle that David went because that battle's already been won by Jesus Christ. You don't have to have that moment Christ has already done it for you. stood in your place. Thank God. Thank God we're not David. Thank God that that battle is already won. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a great and sovereign and powerful God. Your promises are good and true. We pray that you would work in our hearts, Father, that we would understand the magnitude of the grace that we've received from you. That while we were still dead in our sins, Christ died for us. That the biggest battle in our entire lives, the biggest battle in all eternity, has already been won by your Son. And you give us this model to look to. Not so we can emulate David, but so that we can understand the helpless nature of being the Hebrew army. And be solely dependent upon you and your grace, Father. We thank you for that gift. And help us, Father, to commit our lives to you in thanks for the amazing thing you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.